Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and abuse of children that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1992, 64-year-old Alista Leishkatov walked in the lush greenery of his home on Australia's eastern coast. The schlubby New Zealander ambled alongside nine younger women. These were his nine wives, who held hands and smiled for the video cameras that had come to their home. The tabloid news program A Current Affair was there reporting on their bizarre cult-like family with over 60 children. Alista and his wives spoke to a journalist, making increasingly perplexing claims. He called himself a blob who slept with four wives per night. He compared himself to the Bible's famous polygamist, King Solomon. Alista's spouses told the reporter how they were one big happy family. But it was all for show. In 1993, less than a year after the segment aired, his wives exited the marriage en masse. Because beyond their harmonious exterior, Alista fostered a culture of fear and abuse that endangered his entire family. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll focus on Alista Laishkachov, a New Zealand man who thought he was a messiah. In this one-part episode, we'll explore how he maintained a life with nine wives and the circumstances around the family's swift collapse. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. To the world, Alista Laishkachov seemed like a harmless, scruffy man from New Zealand. But to his wives and children, he was a sinister cult leader who controlled and abused his family members in unimaginable ways. Most of what we know about Alista's hidden behavior comes from his wives and children. Their accounts paint a horrific portrait of the man who tormented them. But as far as we can tell, Alista wasn't always like that. As a young man, he was lost and searching for direction with a completely different name. On October 17, 1928, he was born Ian Francis Lowe in Auckland, New Zealand. No information appears to be available on who his parents were or what happened to them. But we do know that young Ian was left in the care of his maternal grandparents. Ian's grandfather was a carpenter. Growing up, the boy took an interest in the craft. However, Ian's desire to work with his grandfather didn't last into adulthood. Instead, he wanted to become a baker. He was so serious about the career that he took an apprenticeship. But in 1953, 25-year-old Ian grew tired of the profession. He probably didn't like the job's tediousness, long hours, and lack of recognition. So he changed gears yet again, still yearning for a true purpose, a calling. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In 2014, researcher Larissa Rainey from the University of Pennsylvania posited a construct called purpose anxiety, and perhaps that's what Ian may have been experiencing. People can experience anxious feelings about trying to find their life's direction at any age. 
However, adolescents and emerging adults like Ian can especially feel stress, worry, and frustration as they search for meaning. And just like Ian, the researcher noted that people who feel purpose anxiety may tend to switch jobs often, think they're a failure, and agonize about whether they will ever determine their life's desire. Perhaps it was this kind of anxiety that led Ian to pursue a new career that was the exact opposite of baking. This time, he'd take an exciting job where he could potentially be recognized as a hero. So Ian joined the New Zealand police and started at their lowest rank, constable. He went through the necessary training and soon he patrolled the streets of Auckland. Not long after that, things started looking up for Ian in his professional and personal life. Ian fell in love with a woman who we'll call Lila. She seemed different than anyone else he'd ever met, partly because she was a Mormon. Most people associate the faith with the U.S. where it was founded, but it has had a presence in New Zealand since the late 1800s. By the 1950s, the Mormon population had grown to over 10,000, enough to support two churches. And soon, Ian would join the fray. Lila introduced him to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the more he learned about Mormons, the more he wanted to be one. He was especially intrigued that the religion once allowed men to have more than one wife. Historically, the Mormon belief in polygamy has been quite controversial. Polygamy, or plural marriage, was a practice in the early Mormon church, following the guidance of the church's founder, Joseph Smith. Smith based this tenet on a message from God, and likely on the Old Testament, where men such as Abraham, Jacob, and King Solomon had multiple spouses. Joseph Smith's revelation was made public in the mid-1800s, and select Mormon families began to follow it. However, it's important to note that mainstream Mormons don't support polygamy. In 1890, the faith officially renounced plural marriage, and since then it punishes polygamists with excommunication. However, the doctrine remains in some scriptures, and polygamy is still practiced by some fundamentalist groups. Lila's specific denomination was unclear, but in 1953, 25-year-old Ian wed her in a Mormon church. Everything was finally going right in his life. He married the woman he loved, had a stable job, and found a religion that fascinated him. It seemed like Ian had finally found his purpose. But one by one, the pieces of his perfect life started to crumble. After only one year of service in 1954, 26-year-old Ian quit the New Zealand police because he stopped liking the work. And by 1967, after 14 years of marriage, Ian and Lila divorced. At this point, 39-year-old Ian's life was in shambles, and he faced entering middle age without any sense of purpose. But he did have one thing left, everything he learned about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ian especially held fast to the polygamy doctrine. According to a 2019 study in the journal Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences, men tend to be more accepting of the practice than women. The study examined 373 heterosexual college students for how they perceived a hypothetical convicted polygamist. When asked what punishment the polygamist deserved, more of the male participants suggested a lenient punishment than the women, suggesting that they thought the polygamist's actions weren't so bad. But if Ian was like these men, he took this viewpoint a step further. He became obsessed with plural marriage. He studied faiths and cultures with similar beliefs about matrimony in their history, such as earlier forms of Judaism, Islam, and Pacific Islander practices. 
each of those groups had leaders or members who practiced polygamy at one point. The Jewish Torah allowed men to marry multiple spouses, but the religion banned the custom centuries ago. Islam's sacred text, the Quran, stated that men could marry up to four women, but less than 1% of Muslim men currently practice polygamy. Several Hawaiian kings and chiefs often had multiple wives, but again, this happened long ago. Yet to Ian, these early examples justified his belief in wedding multiple spouses, despite polygamy being illegal in New Zealand. He formed his own twisted philosophy, creating a new religion. The exact specifics are unclear, but one of his doctrines centered around a grandiose, inexplicable belief about himself. In his new religion, Ian thought that he was Jesus Christ. Up next, Ian Lowe reinvents himself and attracts followers in Australia. Robbing trains, rustling cattle. Pop culture usually depicts the Old West as an uncharted land with no rules. But how much of that is true? Now you can find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales in the Spotify original from ParCast, Wild Wild West. Every Thursday on Spotify, saddle up to the saloon to hear about the American frontier's most ruthless outlaws and heroic gunslingers. Wild Wild West features a compilation of episodes from shows across ParCast Network and focuses on the legends that help shape American culture. From sharpshooters and explorers to family feuds and lost treasure, the West has a history more complex than you know. Don't be a yellow belly. Follow Wild Wild West free and only on Spotify. At Outback Steakhouse, your wish is our command. Back by popular demand, steak and lobster at a special price starting at $19.99. Come enjoy our bold centre-cut sirloin seasoned with our signature blend of 17 spices and paired with a buttery, succulent lobster tail. Hurry into Outback Steakhouse where your steak and lobster wishes come true at a price you can't miss. Steak and lobster, starting at $19.99. No rules, just right. Now back to the story. In 1967, 39-year-old Ian Lowe's life had fallen apart, but he found some hope in his bizarre polygamist philosophy. After spending countless hours studying different religions, he found a new sense of purpose based on a peculiar belief that seemed to come out of nowhere. Ian thought he was Jesus Christ. It's unclear where or how he found such a divine claim, but we do know that Ian was showing signs of narcissistic personality disorder, which one psychiatrist diagnosed him with years later. According to the DSM-5, people with the condition exhibit a grandiose sense of self-importance. This aligned with Ian's outlandish claim of being the Christian Messiah. Individuals with narcissistic personality disorder not only believe that they're more exceptional than others, they also lack empathy and want excessive admiration. And Ian sought that adulation by naming himself the new Messiah. Now he just needed followers to worship him as such. In 1969, 41-year-old Ian moved to Australia's largest city, Sydney, and soon took on a brand new moniker, Alista Leishkachav. We don't know why Ian Lowe changed his name, but an aspect of his narcissism likely prompted him to do it. Many psychologists believe that narcissists have something called a false self, a fantasy image of who they are or could be. 
Narcissists often use this other identity to project their grandiose self-worth, and their old, true self becomes an obstacle to fully embracing it. So a narcissist might try to shed any evidence of their past self, like their old name, to preserve their mind's ego-driven narrative. Essentially, it seems that Ian altered his name to Alista to fully adopt his new messianic existence. With his new moniker, Alista traveled around Australia in the 1970s. He preached about his new polygamy-centered philosophy and claims of divinity. Surprisingly, Alista's bizarre ideology captivated a small yet growing audience. He promised them salvation, but not in the same way Jesus Christ once did. Alista told his followers that one day a UFO would come to Earth to whisk away those who believed in his powers. He claimed he knew this because he received visions from other worlds and beings, including extraterrestrials. Alista's celestial beliefs weren't the only things that fascinated his small but loyal collection of supporters. Despite his homely appearance, he was very charming. His open demeanor made it easy for followers to trust him. In a 2018 article for Business Insider, California State University Los Angeles psychology professor Dr. Ramani Durvasula explains that charisma is a key trait of narcissistic personality disorder. In the article, she said that narcissists tend to use charm and charisma to mask any wrongdoings. Then, when a narcissist mistreats someone, the harmed person tends to rationalize the narcissist's behavior. And Delista's growing list of followers likely felt the same way, drawn in by his magnetism and assurances of future redemption. They probably thought that a man with such alluring features could never mistreat them. Middle-aged Alista's mystique seemed especially appealing to younger single women. He spent a lot of time with them, relaying his offbeat beliefs and earning their trust. As Alista collected more devotees, he noticed they seemed to regard him more highly than he ever expected. His promises of extraterrestrial salvation entranced the ladies, and they did whatever he wanted. Eventually, Alista started courting many of these women simultaneously. Finally, he could pursue his dream of plural marriage. Unexpectedly, some men also wanted to join the fray. One of Alista's male followers was an Australian politician and homeopathic physician named Dr. Isaac Golden. Soon, Golden advanced to become one of Alista's most prized followers. For this high rank, Alista gave Golden a new identity, just like he once did for himself when arriving in Australia. He renamed Golden Yitzhak. Alista told Golden that he wasn't just a regular doctor. Golden was the reincarnation of a groundbreaking German homeopath named Samuel Hahnemann, who lived in the 1700s. It was a bizarre compliment, but one that Golden must have liked. Clearly, Alista seemed to be charming Golden, as well as the rest of the men too, but it wasn't to make them fall in love with him. Instead, Alista seemed to use the male supporters to recruit the women in their lives. Alista encouraged wife-swapping, and also asked the men to hand over their daughters to live in his compound. Completely under his spell, the men obeyed. Then, at one point, Alista instructed the men to live in another home separate from the main house. This way, the male followers still felt included, but Alista was free to do whatever he wanted with the women and girls. Over the next decade, Alista built up a harem and started marrying his young female followers including a woman named Michelle McGuire and her sister Gail. Since polygamy was illegal in Australia, it's unclear if Alista legally wed any of them, or if they just tied the knot symbolically. 
but we do know that by 1983, the 55-year-old had nine wives, who were all at least 30 years his junior. That meant Alista's oldest wife was probably 25. In 1983, Alista and his harem moved to the southern coast of Australia, settling in Bells Beach, a small town. Thousands of people often pass through the renowned surfing destination for annual competitions, but they rarely stuck around. Alista likely picked the area because of its quiet, transient nature. No one would notice that he was living with nine different women there. They resided in a two-story house on nearly 10 acres of land, which also had several sheds in the back. His male devotees followed, settling in a separate nearby residence. Throughout the house, Alista blasted Hawaiian music and gave his wives Hawaiian names, reflecting his love of the once polyamorous culture. As for himself, Alista wandered around the residence in a sarong. His followers later said that they referred to him as the controller. As the troubling nickname indicated, he micromanaged every facet of their lives. He locked the family's food supply in a shed, making it only accessible when he said so. He scheduled sex with each wife two or three times a week. According to the New Zealand Herald, this was part of his system to make sure each wife received an equal amount of sexual attention from him. At night, he slept with two women in his futon bed, while his other seven spouses slumbered elsewhere in the same room. Before long, the wives gave birth to his children. Alista gave the babies Hawaiian names, and they overwhelmed the small house. In the mid-1980s, Michelle McGuire gave birth to a daughter, Kira. But as Kira grew up in the chaotic home, she didn't even know that Michelle was her actual mother. Kira likely thought Michelle was just one of her caretakers, since Alista's nine wives all attended to Kira and her astonishing 60-plus siblings. Either way, they lived in a disorganized, jam-packed house. They slept on top of one another, crammed into the bedrooms with 15 bunks each. At that point, expanding their home seemed to be out of the question. Reportedly, they lived off the Australian welfare system. According to the Daily Mail, years later, Alista admitted the family received as much as $250,000 a year in checks. He gave each wife an allowance, only $25 a week. After that, Alista set aside $550 a week for groceries. Alista likely kept the rest for himself, and it's unclear what he did with the money. He seemed to prefer living simply, keeping his hair long and wearing robes. Alista didn't use the cash to indulge in any luxuries. Instead, he may have enjoyed hoarding the wealth as a power play and probably used it to instill fear in his family. Every day, Alista made sure his wives and children knew that the outside world was evil. They could only trust him, and he was their only path to salvation. As for the children, Alista's sons and daughters had little joy in the house. The family didn't acknowledge the children's birthdays, and they were all homeschooled. They were taught to distrust anyone and everything outside their home life, so they rarely met any other kids outside of their brood. As a result, Alista's children only had each other to turn to for support, especially when their father turned violent. If his sons and daughters misbehaved, Alista often slapped them and accused them of being possessed by the devil. At one point, he threw a wooden plank at a child's head. No matter where the kids went in the house, they couldn't find refuge from Alista's wrath. They weren't even safe sleeping in their bedrooms. The kids' rooms were filled both with 59-year-old Alista's own children and the daughters of his male followers. 
1987, Alista started going into the bedrooms in the evenings. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, he began assaulting the children. He abused girls who were between 7 and 11 years old. One victim later recounted that on these nights, he would try to wake her up by shaking her and kissing her on the mouth. Once she awoke, Alista led her to a location where they could be alone. He often picked a bathroom or a backyard shed. Once Alista isolated the girl, he sexually assaulted her. In one particular instance, after an assault, he told an eight-year-old girl that she'd be his wife one day. According to the victims who later came forward, he routinely singled out at least three of his young devotees. After one act of abuse, he reportedly urged the girl not to tell anyone about it. If she did, Alista claimed that God would punish her. But Alista wasn't always careful when making his selection. At one point, he chose one of his daughters, which a detective from the Melbourne Sexual Crime Squad believed was a mistake. Alista didn't even realize he raped his own child. Naturally, the abuse left the kids deathly afraid of Alista. Since he'd scared the girls into staying silent, it seems that none of the nine wives knew about the abuse. The children had no way to escape and didn't know anyone outside the family who they could turn to for help. That was until the summer of 1991. Around then, the massive brood became too much for 63-year-old Alista and his spouses, so they were forced to make a risky decision that ultimately led to the cult's demise. Up next, Alista Leishkachov and his family are exposed to the outside world. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1991, 63-year-old Alista Leishkachov and his nine wives lived in Bells Beach, a small surfing town on the southern Australian coast. He had completely isolated his family from the outside world until now. Around this point, he and his spouses made a surprising decision. They enrolled the children in public schools. The teenagers registered at Oberon High School. Meanwhile, the 29 younger kids signed up to attend primary school in Torquay, a nearby resort town. And to matriculate, Michelle McGuire and the eight other wives brought their 29 children to the school. They met with Principal Ken McCallum, who couldn't believe his eyes. Ken likely thought it was a bizarre sight, but he cast any judgment aside. He sat in his office and enrolled each child one by one. But he started to notice the kids' strange behavior. Alista's sons and daughters were very quiet and shy, very unlike the other rambunctious youths that filled the primary school. Ken also observed that Alista's offspring had extremely fair skin, as if the children didn't go outside much. It was certainly out of the ordinary, but ultimately the school principal didn't think anything of it. Ken's worries were eased after he saw how loving and caring Michelle and the other wives were to the kids. The spouses participated in many school activities to help their children settle in. And occasionally, Alista showed up too. During a parent-teacher conference, he strolled in wearing a flowing robe and sporting long hair. Even so, perhaps the school staff viewed them as a quirky family and didn't see any reason to think the children were in danger. Alista's kids stayed quiet and didn't tell anyone about the abuses they endured, which is unfortunately common for child abuse victims. According to the advocacy organization La Casa Center, children tend to remain silent about the abuse for several reasons. 
they often blame themselves for what happened, feel ashamed, and worry about how people will react. And that was on top of the fear Alista instilled in them in their home. So, even though the children were finally in contact with the outside world, they were too scared to ask for help. And before they could muster the courage, their window to cry for help quickly closed. Alista likely felt anxious that his sons and daughters spent most of their days out of his control. But he may have recognized that as the children got older, they needed more room. So in early 1992, 64-year-old Alista pulled the kids out of school and used his massive welfare income to buy a new home. He loaded the wives and kids into their bus and moved the entire brood 1,000 miles to a hippie town called Byron Bay, located on Australia's eastern coast. His family was soon thriving in a new, luxurious compound. While it was certainly an upgrade, Alista also likely chose the dwelling because it was surrounded by greenery. The property was completely isolated from the rest of the town and gave Alista another fresh start. Despite Alista's need for total control, the brood continued venturing into the outside world out of necessity. But soon enough, an even more public entity found out about the family, the Australian media. Later in 1992, the Australian tabloid TV program, A Current Affair, somehow found out about Alista and his large household. Suddenly, a journalist and cameras descended upon the compound. Even though Alista decried the outside world, he seemed to like receiving attention and welcomed reporters inside his home. A journalist interviewed Alista and his nine wives about their lives, making it seem like they were one big happy family. The TV cameras captured Alista and the wives sitting on the beach, walking with their kids and playing guitar together. Alista appeared on the show sporting wild, graying, curly hair, a thick mustache, and a floral printed Aloha shirt. When he spoke to the reporter, he had a very different demeanor than the strict and controlling one his family knew. On screen, Alista seemed bashful. While he always boasted about his specialness to his family and his remaining followers, Alista made a different claim on a current affair. He told the journalist that any man could aspire to be like him. Alista said, I don't think I am more special than any other man, and I believe any man can do what I do and satisfy four to five women a night. As for the wives, they told the journalists that they found their husband sexy and intelligent. Notably, Michelle McGuire declared that if a parent could love more than one child, that it was possible for Alista to love multiple wives. The report gained traction around the country and soon the world. A few months later, Alista appeared on the TV show Hard Copy. But these tabloid journalists portrayed his family as a cult. The media even gave the family a nickname, the Seaside Sect. This may have bruised Alista's ego because his demeanor at home darkened. This is in line with narcissistic personality. Individuals with narcissistic personality disorder perceive criticism as threatening information. As a result, someone like Alista would try to restore his ego by resorting to aggressive behavior. We don't know exactly what happened, but according to New Zealand's Stuff magazine, this was when Alista first became violent with his wives. The children likely saw their father's brutality and how it was tearing the family apart. To protect everyone from Alista's terror, one child asked for help. Sometime in 1993, one of the girls told a school friend about Alista's sexual abuse. This set in motion a series of events that led to the police being called. 
Suddenly, a list landed on Melbourne's sexual crime squad's radar, and detectives started looking into his behavior. It's unclear if Alista's nine wives knew about the investigation, but if they did, it likely increased the tension in the home. The family was a powder keg waiting for a spark. And one day in 1993, that spark arrived. According to the Daily Mail Australia, Alista and his spouses got into a huge argument about an unknown topic. We can imagine they fought and screamed for hours. By the end of it, Alista's once happy-seeming family began to collapse. Michelle McGuire and two other wives packed up their children and left the compound for good. Michelle had her six children in tow, including young Kira. Michelle and her kids went to live with her parents in Brisbane, about 100 miles away from the Byron Bay compound. Meanwhile, Alista's six remaining wives and children separated from Alista, but continued living with each other. The seaside sect crumbled, and Alista was left completely alone. Five years later, in 1998, the police caught up with Alista and arrested the 70-year-old for sexual assault and abuse. Alista finally faced a trial for his crimes against his wives and children. As part of the proceedings, psychologists evaluated him. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, the report stated that he didn't have a history of diagnosed mental illness or drug or alcohol abuse. The doctors observed that Alista was disheveled, easygoing, but very suspicious. And one psychiatrist diagnosed Alista with an ongoing personality disorder of the narcissistic and charismatic type. In August of 2000, he was found guilty of 20 child sex offenses and one charge of reckless injury. The court sentenced 72-year-old Alista to seven and a half years in jail. After the verdict was determined, Alista's lawyer told the Australian Associated Press that he suffered the loss of his family, however unusual that family was. Only two of his sons stayed in contact with Alista. The rest of his wives and 62 children wrote him off. The family he once leaned on and saw as the culmination of his life's purpose had completely abandoned him. As for the outside world, the man who once claimed he was a messiah was now persona non grata. In 2008, he was deported back to New Zealand. According to his son, Shem Baker, Alista lived there isolated and with no support. Four years later, the 83-year-old died alone in 2012. But even though Alista has been gone, his legacy still lived on in his children. His daughter, Kira, went on to work in real estate as an adult and found her own fame in a very modern way, reality TV. In July of 2016, Kira was a contestant on the dating series, The Bachelor Australia. She made headlines for her fierce attitude and one-liners. But a month later, she dominated the press for another reason. In August of 2016, the Australian magazine Woman's Day published a bombshell article about Kira's past, growing up in Alista's seaside cult. Almost immediately, Australian journalists further exposed her association with the group, unearthing her mother Michelle's 1992 appearance in A Current Affair. Soon after, Kira put out a statement denying that she had any kind of relationship with Alista while she lived in the cult and after she fled. Instead, she credited Michelle for taking her away from the cult and bringing her to a loving, caring, and compassionate household. In an interview on the Australian TV show, The Project, Kira spoke more about the experience. She kept her past secret from the people she knew, including the Bachelor producers. 
But ultimately, she opened up about it in the tearful interview. Kira said, I didn't want to tell people because I didn't want to be judged. She also told viewers, I feel like I have a responsibility now to let people know that you cannot be defined by anything that is out of your control. Additionally, she revealed that she had since reunited with many of her siblings. Presumably, every one of them dealt with the aftermath of the seaside sect in their own ways, and many struggled to move past it. For Alista's wives, children, and former followers, their scars have remained through the years. But now, they can finally move forward and live their lives, free of Alista's oppressive control for good. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hey, partners, it's Carter from Parcast. You've probably heard stories about outlaw Jesse James, sharpshooter Annie Oakley, and the horrors of the Donner Party. But how much of what you've heard is actually true? Find out on my new series, Wild Wild West, where I head out on the frontier to find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Wild Wild West, every Thursday, free, and only on Spotify. Spotify.